If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. I like the little chill that goes across the room when we talk about Old Testament books. That's just a joke. If you're like me, at one point or another, you've thought that maybe if I could just get a special glimpse of God, if I could just experience Him in a new and fresh way, if I could just see something that maybe nobody else has seen, I would love people more. And I would be kind and, and I would serve Him with abandon and I would have this relationship with Him that couldn't be parallel because He took the time to show me something special He'd ever shown anybody. Have you ever done that before? Does everybody realize He's already done that? Let me, let me say this real quick. This is a little segue going into it, but I think it's important because of how popular it's become. There's a book that is running rampant in Christian circles called Jesus Calling. Some of you own it. It is by a lady named Sarah Young. And her whole point in writing this book was, as she said, I know how I've been taught in the past is that the Bible is how God speaks to me. But I longed for something more. So I decided to get out pen and paper and I decided to start writing. That's one of the most dangerous things I've ever heard in Christianity. Is I wanted God to talk to me apart from the Bible. That is scary stuff. That is scary stuff. And here is the reason why. is because sinful, emotional beings with pen in hand, stating that God has spoken to me in this way, has the tendency to be manipulated from the get-go. It's a scary place to start. It's, it's amazing to think, well, if I set this aside just a little bit, let's see what this is. And, and, and People, we have the Jesus Calling Bible now. We have the sequel to the sequel to the sequel of this book. We have its own journaling companion. And I'm telling you, it is extremely dangerous and I encourage you to get away from it. Because it's no different how we want to live our lives. We want to live our lives often apart from the Word of God. And when truth confronts us, we have a myriad of ways that we can respond to it. We can humble ourselves and embrace it. We can put up a fight and argue against it. Or we can be, as scary as it is in the book of Judges, we really don't have a king in our life and so we're simply just doing what is right in our own eyes. And that is a scary place to be as someone who claims the name of Christ as our Savior. God's Word is complete. It does not need to be added to. It tells us everything we need for life, godliness, righteousness, doctrine, how to live, and it tells us everything that is true about any and every subject that it touches upon. I think that is very important to say up front. Now when we last left off, we found the children of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 screaming out for a king. And if you remember, they wanted a king like what? What was the big thing that was so alarming about their request for a king? Do you remember? Look at all the other nations. They obviously have it going on. They've obviously got it together. So we want a king like that. 
We want a king that will govern us like everybody else. We want a king that will fight our battles. We want a king that is going to make us victorious in the situation. Let me ask you a question. Well, of course, were they right? No, but what was the real problem about why their situation wasn't working? They weren't listening to the Lord. Or, what we've been summing up for the past year, unbelief. It's all unbelief. And so what is interesting you find is that in the law of God, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you actually have that the Lord took the time to set aside, because He's not ignorant, He knows, He knows what's coming, He's omniscient. He took the time to set around six verses that are going to lay out what the requirements are for a king should one be installed for Israel. And I think this is important because we are going to look at this and then examine the failure of the first king of Israel. So in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, everybody look down at verse 14. That's where we're going to start. It says, When you enter the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you, and you possess it. Does anybody remember what's the word that we can interchange with possess here? Inherit. When you inherit it, so notice that. You enter it, you inherit it as your own, and you live in it, and you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you. Now watch this. If you've got a pen, I'm going to, we're going to go through and see what are the requirements for a king. Number one, whom Yahweh your Elohim chooses. The requirement for a king over Israel is one of God's choice. Or, let's go ahead and branch the vocabulary a little bit, and you might remember back to this lesson when we focused on it. I think we took two lessons to do it, two Sundays in a row. This is God's election of a king. Election is unto a purpose, task, vocation, in order to be lived out or for that person to responsibly fulfill. Election in the Bible is not about God choosing certain people to heaven and certain people to hell. You will not find one scripture in all of the Bible that uses it in that way. But what you do see is that people are chosen for a task to fulfill or a ministry that needs to be done well. So notice, the first thing is is that God is the one who does the choosing. God will select the king. The second thing you see, he is one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Not only does God do away with the political process of people deciding who they won and 51% of the vote wins, but he also wants to make sure that this person is homegrown that this person has the best interest in mind of the people that he is ministering to, that he has gone through the same type of struggles, that he has the same sort of history and upbringing and background, that he is intimately aware of the covenants and promises that were made all the way back to the time of Abraham. Right? Those who don't know history or what? Bound to repeat it or doomed to repeat it? Exactly. So you want someone who is thoroughly embedded into the Jewish lifestyle and understanding 
That causes you to make much wiser decisions than somebody who is just thrust in who has no care for the people. Now look at verse 16. Moreover, number three, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never again return to, or sorry, return that way. Not to multiply horses. Okay, I can understand God's going to choose the person for the position. I can understand that it needs to be somebody who grew up in the mix. But how did horses get thrown into this whole thing? Not multiplying horses, and I think it's really interesting, not go down to Egypt to retrieve horses. I mean, if you remember what God did to Egypt, horses is about all they have left, isn't it? So notice, because they're not prominent at that time. I mean, they've been, they've been laid waste in the dirt. I mean, they're, they, in fact, they don't even pop up again as a nation of prominence until Solomon's time. It took that long for them to recover. So why would he say not collect many horses? What would that represent? Wealth? Power? What would you use horses for at that time? War. You'd use them for an army. Now, who have we seen so far that is the fighter, the warrior of Israel? It's God. God fights the battles. He is the warrior that goes before them. He is the one who overthrew Pharaoh, the horse and the rider, into the sea, right? And you remember Exodus 15? They all came out on the shore and they worshiped God for who He is and for what He does. It's because He is the one alone that gets all the credit. You start collecting a lot of horses and you start cladding a lot of guys with armor and and weapons, all of a sudden your trust and where your security is starts to go in a different direction. Notice verse 17, number 4. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Why is that? Because women are crazy, right? I'm just kidding. Man, if any of you got a feminist tinge and you just got real upset with me, it's okay. We'll talk after service and then I'll pray for you. It'll be good. But why is that? It tells us. Notice. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Guys, can a woman turn your heart? I just heard. <laughs> what? What was that? What did he say? No. Ah, young grasshopper, you have much to learn. Yes. In fact, you ladies are trained in persuasion. Right? Batting the eyes. Genetic code, it's in there somewhere, man. The pursing of the lips. The gentle voice. Right? Now, my wife never does that. She's, she's good. But all the rest of you, I don't know about. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But one of the big reasons why a king would end up marrying a lot of women was because that was a means of securing peace for your nation amongst the surrounding nations. You can't attack us. We're family. And so you actually see some of this in the reign of Solomon. In fact, Solomon is the greatest victim in this situation, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, of the fall that happens to him. Wisest man in the world. And his heart ended up turning away from the God who made him 
the wisest man in the world. So in this situation, if you find yourself intermarrying and establishing peace with everyone because we're all family now, you have not only corrupted the covenant that God has made with the Jews, but you've sought to find your security in something else than God's provision. Does everybody see why that's dangerous? Notice the next one of that. Number five, uh, verse, uh, verse 17, middle part, number five. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Has money ever brought peace? It never has. Have, have it one time in our life, if not many times, we thought that it did. We often thought that it did. That's why we have that credit card bill that we just can't seem to pay down and get rid of. It's because somehow on a whim, we thought that that was the thing we needed to be most satisfied. No, what we found out is it just turned into years of misery. It didn't help us at all. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: He who trusts in his riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. I think it's interesting to see that there is a difference that Solomon makes in the Proverbs between what it is to trust in riches and to be righteous. He's not talking about righteous as in how God sees you, your spotless justification righteousness. No, it's talking about how you live your life in righteousness. It's very interesting to see that there is a difference there. Or you've, heard, you've seen Jesus teach on this, right? You can't serve God in money. You will either love the one and abhor the other, or vice versa. They cannot compete. The heart's desperately wicked. So notice, gold and silver, a king should not have. Now, now stop for just a second. If we just stop right here and we think about this, God chooses the king. Got to be somebody who's a national, somebody who's invested, part of the people he's ruling over. Can't have a big army. Can't have a lot of women. Can't have a lot of riches. Does this sound like any king that you know in the world? In fact, notice that God's way and guidelines of establishing a king is the antithesis of how we operate in this world. This planet is full of people who are bursting over with riches. They're bursting over with many wives. They're bursting over with armies. I mean, we even have North Korea whack job guy having parades with his military presence just to show his strength. Did you guys see he just made peace with the South Koreans? You think that's going to last? No. No, this is all a dog and pony show, man. Scary stuff. Does any king that you know of live like this? None. Let me ask you this. If these are the guidelines of how God sees that a king should operate in a kingdom, what does that tell you about the king? What attitude should the king have in this situation? I, I, God's the one who put me in the place. I grew up amongst these people. I I'm, don't have a big army amongst myself. I'm married to one woman. I don't have a lot of money. And you're a king. What does that tell you? Humble. You think God's a big fan of humility? I mean, if you haven't amassed an army, I mean, isn't that what he did with Gideon? If you read through Judges, you got too many people. You go in and you fight this battle, everybody might think that you won the war. No, I'm given the victory. Whittle them down. Very interesting. Very interesting. 
God gets all the glory. This is a way to have somebody in a position to where God still receives all of the glory. In fact, an interesting thing about this, verse 18, number 6, and this is what I think is the most profound requirement in all of this. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. Now watch this. He shall write for himself a handwritten copy. And chances are that's so he could read it, right? His own handwriting. A handwritten copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So notice, okay, this guy is going to be king. Your first task as king is to sit down at a desk and get out a scroll. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe, some people don't agree with this, I believe that what they had to copy out was probably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They needed to have the first five books written down. What do you think it would look like if the president, before he ever did anything, sat down and hand-wrote a copy of the Constitution? Ooh, right? But it's not only that. Not only does he hand-write the law of God, but look what it says after that. It says it should be in the presence of of the Levitical priests. Now there's two points that are really important about this. Why would they do it in the presence of the Levites? Levites were the ministers that were set aside in order to minister unto God. They don't have an inheritance like all the rest of the nations do. Their portion is the Lord and the Lord alone. They act as the intercessors, the one who handle the sacrifices on behalf of the people. Why do you think that he would have to hand write the law with the Levitical priests in the presence? Accuracy? accountability have you ever been reading through your bible and you're like man i got a question about that clears up all the fog right then and there doesn't it he probably if he's like me he probably if he would have copied it down had like one and a half inch margins right so you can take your notes on the side i didn't know what this meant but he said this right the rabbi said this or something you could have the priest's commentary out to the side even to know exactly what it's saying to check your work so that you don't fudge anything does anybody think it's interesting that the king is not writing laws himself? That's not like government. I mean, isn't it kind of government's whole thing is to red tape everybody until we all want to puke on our shoes? Notice that the king doesn't do that. Notice the king doesn't have to establish any laws. The king is copying down the laws that God has established and he simply holds to them. Does everybody see that? There's nothing new that needs to be written up, ratified, go through a couple of people, who's going to vote on this, and no lobbying. No, that needs to happen. The foundations have already been set. Here's the reason why, because a lot of times lawmaking is an excuse for law doing. That's the problem. Now notice the next part. Verse 19, it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. In other words, after he writes down those five books, he keeps that scroll with him. I don't know if he gets a backpack or has a guy hold it or whatever. It never leaves his sight. And when he's got time, he reads it. And he becomes intimately knowledgeable of the first five books of the Old Testament. It is his textbook. 
for living. Now we're going to see why. Notice this. It says that he may, A, learn to fear Yahweh, his Elohim. The very first thing that the first five books of the Old Testament are to accomplish in a person is to draw them to a reverent fear of who God is. It chronicles everything about his position as creator, about the way in which he has orchestrated and brought forth creation. It speaks in depth about how he works with people, how he handles sin, what redemption looks like, how atonement is accomplished through blood. You can't go wrong with it. One reason, cultivate fear. What's interesting is, is if you at some point would go back and look at Exodus chapter 20, and there's the reading of the law, verses 1 through 17. Verses 18, 19, and 20 is the response of the people. And Moses tells them, the Lord has revealed this law to you in this way for one reason, so that you will fear him and do it. So that you will have a respect that the standards that he sets are true, and you will operate your life according to that truth. So it says here, A, that you may learn to fear Yahweh, his Elohim, carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Now notice verse 20. B, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Do you know of any king, prime minister, president, ruler on the planet today who is just one of the guys alongside his people. We never see that, do we? They're always at least a little pedestal up, right? Always at least. Notice how dangerous that is. He is to fear God, he's to carefully observe the laws, and he's to be one of the people. Notice it even talks about that his heart, that the very central seat of his convictions that motivate his decisions should not be lifted up as any better or any more prestigious than anybody of which he is ruling over. It says here, C, notice this. I'm sorry. Go back 20. I'm, I'm lining them up. A, fear God. B, that his heart may not be lifted up as countrymen. And C, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left. Now stop. The more that you read God's word, the more in alignment you are in following him. A lot of times we want to plead ignorance or biblical illiteracy for not simply doing what God has plainly commanded. It's written in black and white for us. This is the most profound way that God has ever communicated, and yet it is as plain as having numerous copies sitting back there waiting for people to take them home and just know the God that made them. Does everybody see why this is so significant here? And we're talking about a ruler that would be put in place. Notice that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that, here is the reason, he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. In other words, it is supposed to set up a culture. Every culture is dictated by the strength of the family. Why is it that Satan is attacking the family? 
Why is it that we have fatherlessness? Why is it that we have broken homes? Why is it that we have unwed pregnancy? Why is it that we have all of these things? Because Satan's prime motivation is to attack the family. When you attack the family and you break down the structure as God created of the family, you diminish and deteriorate the culture. It's very simple. It's not that you need to go to a sociologist and sit on a couch and them tell you what is wrong with life. It is simply looking at it and realizing that Satan is living and active and his desire is to still Steal? 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 Am I saying that right? Can my accent not allow me to say that word? Somebody say it for me. Praise the Lord. Kill. I got that one down. And destroy. That's what he's about. That's not somebody waxing poetic in the Scripture. That's what he does. Prowling around on the earth as a lion looking for someone to devour. Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And it's interesting because you there is plural. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for y'all. Exactly. We cannot underestimate the enemy. So notice that we may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. In other words, here's the idea. The buck doesn't stop with the king. The king answers to a greater authority. The laws come from a greater authority. The the, the person chosen to reign comes from a greater authority. The reason why they've been put in place is a greater authority. The reason why you don't need an army is because there's a greater authority. The reason why you don't need many wives is because there's only one authority. The reason why you don't need riches is because the wealth And prosperity comes from one authority. And that is Yahweh being preeminent over his people. Everybody with me? Great. Now we're going to hop, skip, and jump to 1 Samuel 15. When we get into 1 Samuel, we looked at 8 last time and Samuel's warning about what would happen. Actually, let's stop at 9 for a second and 10 for a second. 1 Samuel 9 and 10. I just want to show you some things. The first person that Yahweh chooses to be king over Israel is Saul. Now, Saul had been like people's man of the year, most handsome man in America, GQ cover model. He was known as more handsome than anybody else in Israel. And it was actually said that he was so tall that he was at least neck and head above everybody else. I mean, he was just something else to be seen. Now, what's odd is when Samuel went to publicly install him as king, he hid behind a lot of baggage so that he wouldn't be seen, literally. So he was, yeah, so Saul did. So he was, he was, he was a very odd, shy individual. He was, he was essentially nothing. He's a Benjamite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And God brings him up to be the king. Look at chapter 9. Look at verses 15, 16. Now, a day before Saul's coming, Yahweh had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be, what's the word? Prince over my people Israel. Why do you think that language there is intentional? Because God is the king. Because Yahweh is the king. That's the reason why. And notice that it uses the phrase, my people, my people, That's Exodus terminology right there. The people that he redeemed. This guy will be the prince over them. But Yahweh is the king. Notice it says here, And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people, 
because their cry has come to me. Now look over at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you a ruler over his, what? Inheritance, his possession, his people. Does everybody see that the text in this situation of selecting this king has a very pointed view about Yahweh's feelings, emotions, relationship with the people of Israel. Does everybody see that? So this is a very careful, I don't know that it's painstaking, I would say, on God's part, but this isn't something he just did flippantly. We'll just pick any guy and I'll just make him rule well. That's not the idea. This is something that Yahweh stuck somebody in place who has the potential of providing the greatest care in this office that has specific requirements to be able to minister to his people effectively. Does everybody see that? Yes? Who's asleep? Okay. Is there a negative spin in here? Not yet. Okay. I would say that has no bearing. Yeah, but I would say that has no bearing here really. Not yet. I think, I think here, and here's a good point that you bring up. I think the only thing that would maybe alarm us if we were reading through is we know back at what it said in Genesis 49.10 about the fact that the scepter would not depart from Judah. I think that is something that we would be concerned about is asking the question, well, why would God choose someone to be the first king of Israel if they're not from the tribe of Judah? That might be something that we would debate. That might be something we would work through in our minds and ask, well, why did God do that? I tell you, I don't know. I don't have a clue. I do know this, that when he, put, when he installed Saul as the king, he set him up to be as successful as somebody could possibly be in this office. I mean, think about it. You don't have to worry about writing any laws. You just need to know the laws that are already there. Here, copy all this down. We're going to give you a textbook to help you out to know how you ought to operate with people. Seems pretty easy to me. He's going to be a man of the people. So it seems like it's something where all you got to do, and this is the trick, isn't it? All you got to do is be faithful in what God's called you in. That's the linchpin. Now at the beginning of Saul's reign, everything's going pretty well until you get to around chapter 14, but in 15 is really where it all tanks. And this is where we're going to quickly bring focus. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, sorry, I apologize. Go ahead and flip there. I don't, want to, I don't want to read before everybody gets there. That's a good sound. All right. Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now immediately that's a tall order. Anytime that something like this is commanded, in fact, everybody see the words there, utterly destroyed. If you have the ESV, it'll say devote to destruction is the idea. 
But that whole word right there, if you've been in our Deuteronomy class and we dealt with it a while back, it's the word harem. It is to utterly destroy, to place a ban over, to exterminate a group of people. And you might say, good grief, what in the world do these people do? Well, when God had led his people Israel out of Egypt, the Amalekites decided they were going to step in front of them and to stop them. And you're probably most familiar with that situation because whenever Moses' arms were held up, Israel would win. But when he got tired and they would come down, they would start to lose. And so they actually propped him up and put some rocks under there so that his hands would stay up. And they ended up over the course of a night winning this battle. So because these people stood in opposition to Israel at that time, God was now bringing them to justice. Let's not think for a moment, and I know this is a hard thing to deal with when we read it in the Bible, but let's not think for a moment that there are any innocent people. There are not. Not one person on the face of the earth is innocent. The only thing we can do is take into account the character of God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is good to all. His mercy is over all that He has made. Ezekiel 18, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. So for God to command something like this is not just real easy. He's sitting up there kind of flipping a remote control deciding who He's going to destroy and wipe out at this time. This is not an easy decision for Him to make. But we do know this from what we saw before. Because of Joshua's unfaithfulness in making a pact or a covenant with the people of the land when they addressed themselves up and tried to lie about who they were, God said, from now on, I'm not removing these people. Instead, these other nations are going to stand here and be a test about whether or not your faithfulness and devotion to me will stand or if you will succumb to their whims and you will start to operate in unbelief. Very big difference. This is the same with Saul. These people are here for this time because I have called you to be faithful in doing my word. So look at verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telium. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and he set an ambush in the valley, which is interesting. If he set an ambush in the valley, this means that he has the high ground. It means that he is set up somewhere as any good military tactical operation would so they have the best possible use of the environment they're having to deal in. Now understand, it's not like Saul is just blindly following this. If he's copied the first five books of the Old Testament, he knows this situation. He's intimately familiar with it. He, he understands what happened at that moment when these people wanted to be in opposition or a thorn in the side of Israel and try to stop God's purposes for them and leading them to the promised land and to victory. So it says here, uh, verse 6, Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites are interesting. If you want to write this down in your margin, uh, Genesis 15, 19, Genesis chapter 15, verse 19. The Kenites are actually one of the groups of people that are residing in the land that God promises to Abraham way back when he makes this covenant with him. But also, Judges 1.16. The Kenites are in relation to Moses' father-in-law. Very interesting how the family structure goes there. So Genesis 15.19, Judges 1.16. Saul said to the Kenites, and they're there around the, the region of Judah, Go, depart, go down from the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. Notice, they're the opposite of the Amalekites. They get spared. Get out of harm's way. Now, everything we see up to this point gives us every indication that Saul is going to do exactly what God asked him to do. There are no problems here. 
He's having mercy on the people that have mercy on Israel. But he is dead set. He has the high ground. He is ready to execute God's word. And it says here, So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Verse 7, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And if you want a reference for that, Genesis 25, verse 18. This is actually all of the land that Ishmael settled in. Uh, when you dealt with uh, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, that situation, it's every place that he settled. They conquered that entire part. Now, verse 8. He captured, and there's your dangerous word. He captured. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed, there's the word again, Haram, all of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul... And the who? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. In other words, we wanted to find out what everybody thought about something before we did what God told us to do. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And, in fact, if you want to number it, you can. Number one, they spared Agag. And the best of, number two, the sheep. Number three, the oxen. Number four, the fatlings, or fattened calves is the idea. Number five, the lambs. And, just in case we miss something, all that's good. I mean, I don't know if they were like, whoa, this guy's got Tupperware, we're taking this. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. This looks pretty good stuff. They haven't ruined this in the dishwasher, right? Whatever. But notice, here's the sad part. And, underline this please, were not willing. Uh Uh-oh. Where's the ultimate problem here? Well, it's disobedience is what it is, but where is the problem in the person? It's the heart. The heart is the very place of which the will proceeds from. We just weren't willing to do this. Notice, they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. You know what this tells me? It tells me that When Saul and the soldiers went in, they killed all the people, but they kept the king. Was the king the best of the people? He wasn't the best of the Amalekites? I mean, wouldn't that be the greatest, grandest move of humiliation for that group of people? Think about it. If the king is the best of their people, that already shows you what a messed up view they had of what a king was even though they had Deuteronomy 17 to tell them differently. But we're going to keep this guy so we can humiliate him. Look who we captured. All your people are dead and we have you. We're going to make a mockery. Did God call him to make a mockery of this guy? Notice, war is not something where you exploit people. That's not the point of it. The point isn't to shame and to bully in those situations. It is to bring about justice because these people are guilty. Not to make them a mockery and a public ridicule and a spectacle. That's not the idea here. But notice, when the people got involved, it's almost like they became Israelite pickers. Some of you get that now. This is valuable. This is valuable. I mean, they, can you imagine? Some of them actually sorted good and worthless sheep. How much time do you think that takes? Did God tell them to do that? 
No, he said destroy everything. Wipe them off the map. Why? Because everything they got going on in the midst is pagan and sinful. And it will do nothing but lead you away from God. And it did that before they ever even got done with the situation. Look what it says. They were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised them worthless. That they utterly destroyed. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, and this is terrible, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now notice, he gives you the reason why. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. This is an instance in Scripture where the election of God went bad. Where his chosen person to fulfill this situation failed. Notice it's not that God made a bad choice. That's not the problem. And they tell us this here. Notice what he says. The reason why I regret this. The reason why. Now on the other side of it. It's not a good idea for him to be king. What does it say? He has turned back. In other words, the responsibility and task that we put in his hand as king, he did not fulfill. Everybody see why election is not unto salvation who goes to heaven and hell. It's about the task or the vocation or the ministry that God gives somebody to fulfill. That's the way that God can elect somebody and then later on regret it. Not because his choice was bad. It's because the person handled the responsibility poorly. That's the problem. Notice it says here, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me. He has not carried out my commands. In other words, he doesn't care about obeying my word, is what the problem is. And Samuel was distressed and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel... And behold, good googly, right? He set up a monument for himself. What's that called? Idolatry. Not only did he go in and not do what God said to do, and now they've got all this rich stuff sitting around that was somebody else's, but he said, you know what? This victory was so amazing. Somebody carve something to me and let's stick it up in this town. Can you imagine? Idolatry. Then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So Samuel came to Saul, verse 13, and Saul said to him, you almost sense that the Hebrew must say, duh, somewhere in here, right? Notice what he says. Saul greets Samuel and he says, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Now immediately we're all like, okay, that ain't right. Right? But let me ask you a question. Was Saul oblivious? I think that he was. Either he's lying to Samuel, or he's completely oblivious, thinking that what he did was obedience. In other words, his obedience of what should have been happened was actually misdirected so it was less than what God asked. Now don't play like we're not guilty of that. Saul is a shining example of this. So notice, blessed are you of the Lord. I fulfilled everything God wanted. The command is done. And I love it. You can just tell. Like Samuel's really upset. But this gives him a chance to exercise the spiritual gift of sarcasm, right? Verse 14. 
But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Can you imagine the scene? I mean, if you have to, close your eyes for a second, right? You can almost see the idol of Saul off in the background. Here comes Samuel walking away from it. He comes upon Saul. Saul says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the commands of the Lord. And there's almost something deep within us as spirit-led people that knows that God timed it like that, right? Notice, then why do I hear all this stuff? Verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people, the people, spared the best of the sheep and oxen, but we did it for a good reason. The reason why you're hearing cows and the reason why you're hearing sheep is because we want to sacrifice to Yahweh our Elohim. But the rest, we destroyed all that. We saved the best in order to offer to the best. That makes more sense, doesn't it? No. Or let's put it this way. How we think a situation ought to be handled and regardless of our good intentions in it, if it's apart from the Word of God, it is totally sin. We often have an idea of what ought to be done without consulting back. God, what did you say to do? How have you commanded us to move forward? How have you commanded me to love my brother or sister? How have you put forward that I should be walking in my daily life? And then we, we are doing what we think it ought to look like instead of what the Scriptures plainly tell us it looks like. Those first five books, indispensable to his reign. Moving on here, we're running out of time. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and Yahweh anointed you king over Israel? And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy, and notice this, just in case we're like, oh, I'm conflicted about how I feel about this. Go and destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. And here's the killer question. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Does he still get it? There's a denseness here somewhere. Inside of us, we're like, come on, man. Right? No, 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 you don't understand, Samuel. I did obey. I did. It's the people's fault we got all these animals around. But I did exactly what God wanted to... Who was over the people at that time? Hmm. You understand, my obedience was different, Samuel. I got the king. Is that any better? No. Verse 21, here it is. Let's pass the buck again. But the people took some of the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the choicest of all things, the best, devoted to destruction... Uh, sorry, of the things devoted to destruction. Notice, notice, notice. Oh my gosh, notice. 
The choicest of things devoted to destruction. It was supposed to be destroyed. To sacrifice to Yahweh, your Elohim, at Gilgal. Is partial obedience obedience? What is it? It's disobedience. In fact, do me a favor. Look at verse 19 one more time before we see Samuel's response. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Essentially, how come you didn't heed God's word? How come you didn't listen to the voice of God? And look what it says. But rushed upon the spoil and did what was what? Get this, people. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. And disobedience is one thing. It's evil. There is no way around it. Disobeying God's word is evil. Period. Now here's Samuel's response. And I even have this in your notes. These two verses right here are worth memorizing. They are worth it. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Would he rather you sacrifice to him and not do what he said, or do what he said and leave the sacrifices at home? Which one? Answer the question. What does it say? As in obeying the voice of the Lord. What's the answer to that question? Who's got a pen? Okay, so let me read it again. Here we go. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? No. So what we write is N-O exclamation point. No. God wants obedience. Now look what he says. And to he, or sorry, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. Now stop. This is what's known in Scripture, literary style-wise, as synonymous parallelism. In other words, you've got two lines that are saying the exact same thing, only they are phrasing it or wording it different. And the way that we figure out what the main thrust, the punch that's going on that Samuel's trying to communicate is you find the words that synonymously match up. Now, now think about what it says here. Behold, to what? Obey is better than sacrifice. And to what? Heed than the fat of rams. Listen. Some of your translations have the word listen. If we are looking at this from the literary structure of synonymous parallelism, what we're actually seeing is the Hebrew understanding of what it is to listen and to heed something is actually the equivalent of obeying whatever it says. In other words, it's not just, hey, this is something I need to know. I'm going to be smarter when Jeopardy rolls around. That's not the idea. The idea is, is if God told you something, the expectation is, is that your life is so changed that you cannot take one more step forward in the normal mode of decisions that you have made without conforming that path to what God has told you. Why? Because only what He speaks is true. Does that make sense? So notice, God desires obedience. He wants you to listen and to do what He's saying. And he says in verse 23, for rebellion, notice that's what he equates the disobedience with. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Anybody know what divination is? Witchcraft. It's the same as you getting out trinkets and crystals. It's the same as you barking at the moon. It's the same as you pulling out Ouija boards and thinking that some weirdo is moving it around. It's nothing different from consulting mediums and spirits, which is crazy because towards the end of Saul's reign, that's exactly what he did. He went to a fortune teller. 
in order to get guidance. Notice moving on here. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's the same thing. To disobey God is like you're, you're worshiping uh, demons and stuff. And insubordination. Some of your translations will say presumption. Stubbornness. The literal translation of this is self-will. In other words, when you're all about yourself, it is iniquity and idolatry. Now we know that because Saul was so into it and so oblivious of what was going on, he decided to set up a statue that looked like him. Who really think who who you think he thought ruled at that time? Dangerous. So notice this. Because you have rejected, because you have rejected. Disobedience is rejection, is the idea. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. And hold it, everybody hold on to it, because finally, the truth comes to light. Finally, when you press that child who you know is lying, and the pressure gets thick, and the situation is overly serious, the truth bubbles to the surface. The next word, because. Here's the reason why I sinned. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now think about this. Here are the problems that we deal with. Because this, this is totally transferable to what you and I deal with today. Think of all the things that you're fearful of in life. And I don't care if that's, well, I have a healthy respect for this, all the way to the other side of the spectrum of, I actually have a phobia in this direction. I'm actually scared to death of this, whatever it is. Think about that for a second. And then let me ask you a question. On that scale of the things that you are fearful of, where does God fall in that scale? If all of these things have somehow achieved this plateau or this, or this uh, uh, precedence that has been elevated up above that, we have got a God problem. Because if God is not the person that we fear the most, if He is not the one that we reverence the most, if He is not the one that we realize not only blesses by His grace, but can spank us like any good father will, we've got a God problem. We are thinking about God incorrectly. And if you trace that back, that is the root of every sin that we ever commit in life. A fear of the Lord has got to be first and foremost above all things. Number two, we listen to the words of everybody else. We listen to the words of other people. Somehow they mattered. Somehow we still live in high school. Somehow peer pressure still makes an impact on us. Somehow we got off track. Somehow this took the back seat. Somehow as well, I was talking to my buddies down there and uh, they were saying this. Well, my girlfriend's on the phone said this. And somehow everybody else's opinion became more important than what God has already said. These are the roots of disobedience. I don't fear God. 
Somebody else had something better to say. Whether it was something better to say that they just offered that opinion at the time, or that's the thing that you really wanted to hear, and it so scratched your back, you said, yeah, i got to have more of that. That must be the right way to go. Is that you? Is that me? Do I have a healthy fear of God in my life? Do I have a reverence for Him? Do I realize that the only reason why I live and move and have my being, do I realize that the only reason why any of us are breathing oxygen right now and He has not taken us away is because He still has things for us to do. He controls that life. It's all in His hands. Have I reverenced other people and their words above this? That's one of the biggest problems that we find in the church today. We'll read books about everything but the book that matters. We'll read what people have to say about the Word instead of reading the Word and judging what people have to say. we got a problem. It can't continue. Because when we get in those situations and we find ourselves in disobedience, guess what? It's like the same as us doing witchcraft. Anybody want to drag a bunch of dark crystals and black magic in here and before the Lord perform any seances or rituals? I'm sure we get John Lennon to come back and talk to us for about 10 minutes. Maybe he'll even sing Imagine for us. Imagine there's no heaven. It sounds pretty good, right? Everybody see how messed up and just diametrically opposed to everything that is righteous and holy. I don't think Samuel was pulling our leg and I don't think he was seeking for ways to be more poetic in his writing. I think what he was doing was clearly taking the spirit of truth and piercing Saul's heart so that he would be so impacted by it that he would never operate that way again. And here's the amazing thing. When you look at Saul's life, Saul went downhill from here. His response to the Word of God, and this is the responses that you get, are either to harden a heart or to soften a heart. His choice was to harden his heart to God. And in doing so, being disqualified as king, he could have recovered. He could have humbled himself and said, I'm wrong. And even though I'm having to give up being king of Israel, I still need to prostrate myself before God and beg for his mercy on my life because everything I have is from him anyway. No, instead what happens is is he's paranoid of David, tries to kill him two times in one instance, wastes all kinds of time, money, and resources hunting him down because he knows that is God's anointed, gets mad at some priests that help him out while he's on the run, and commands for 85 Levitical priests to be killed in one instance at that moment, decides to go and consult a medium, a witch, in order to get some sort of guidance. And the way that his life ends is that he ends up killing himself by thrusting himself on his own sword. This is a life that is wasted. This is a life that had the potential to be amazing for the glory of God. And because the peer pressure came in, because we fooled ourselves that we were really all about God, but we weren't really all about His Word, it ended in decimation. Now, I don't want to end all gloom and doom, even though this is a pretty sad section here. But I will tell you this. The same incredible grace that God uses to save people is the same incredible grace that He unfolds to invite people to return to Him if they are wayward. And here's the amazing thing about that. 
We are so good in this day and age of hiding our waywardness with the Lord that only you know and He knows. I can't be your Holy Spirit. But I tell you what I can do. I can pray that the Holy Spirit, as He is commissioned to do, would convict us all of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It would make us realize, man, if we're off track, if we're off base, even if it's just a little bit, that is something that we need to humble ourselves before the Lord, receive His Word and see the correction that is involved in this, and say, God, thank you for being so gracious that you still make it possible through Jesus that I can still come to you and simply just say I'm sorry. And he cleanses us from how much unrighteousness? Oh man, do we really believe that? Do we really believe all unrighteousness? Think about this. How different would Saul's life have been if he just simply humbled himself before the Lord? You think the Lord would have cleansed him of all unrighteousness? And God is looking for opportunities to be merciful. He is awaiting instances when we're walking in our lives like this. We're dead set going somewhere. And what does he do as a gentleman? He just walks behind us. And you know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for you and me to turn around and hug him. He's waiting for us to stop going in our own direction and turn around and run to him. You know what he does at that moment? This. No different from the father of the prodigal to receive him full and free without any requirement whatsoever. Because we are all products of his grace. Don't abuse that. Don't waste that. Don't dismiss that. And do not walk out of here the same person. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy in our lives. Father, as painful as it is to see how Saul was set up for success and had guidelines and was intimately aware of who you are, how you work. Father, he allowed value to get the upper hand. He allowed people's words to become important. He didn't fear you. Father, you are the creator of this entire world that we live in. May our hearts be tender toward you. May you bring to mind and convict our hearts of where we are out of line with you. And that we would come to you humbly and say, Lord, I am sorry. Father, you desire my obedience more than anything else that I think I might be doing that is good for you. Help us realize how heinous our sin is. And realize that your mercy is infinitely good. So Father, if we need to be brought to the end of ourselves, if maybe we've set up monuments around our own victories, Father, help us to tear those down so that you can be preeminent. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.